Hi, I'm Taban Sharesh, the host of That Something Within. My aim with this podcast is to have conversations with people from all walks of life to find out that moment where that something within was triggered for them to make changes in their life. I hope you enjoy listening to this and find inspiration in these stories. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Welcome to That Something Within. And I'm so happy to be joined by Dr. Leila Hussain, um, the founder of the Dalio Project and Magul. And uh, Leila is also a psychotherapist. So this week we'll be talking about um, Leila's journey and how that something within for her was triggered and how it impacted her life and the impact it's had to this day. So welcome, Leila. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. And congratulations as well. You know, oh, very thank important. You so much. Yeah, important conversations, definitely. I I just realized that I have so many amazing people around me. How do I kind of connect other people? And we we always have these deep conversations between us, right? When we sit down, Absolutely. we kind of go into these things. Absolutely. I feel like other people need to hear it. Well, I feel the same. I'm always like, oh my god, when I meet somebody, I'm like, you must meet that person. You must. And this is, I think, since this whole pandemic, you know, has started, I think even though we're not physically with each other, we've been having much more intimate conversations with people and we are finding ways of actually archiving that. So that's how I'm seeing this conversation. It's, it's a way of archiving, you know, some of the stuff, you know, some of the conversations you and I have been having for a while now <laughs> with lots of food. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's recording history. And that, mm. I can't, I, when I was younger, it was so, so somebody said to me, um, it's so important to capture stories because you're actually capturing history. And that has always stuck with me. And I think, you know, the most inspiring people around me, they've all got phenomenal stories. And we're, you know, we're activists, we talk about it in different areas. But actually, this is really digging quite deep and going in and seeing actually what, what was that moment that made you really, that aha moment that made you change everything. And now you're living this life mm. because of that decision that you made. So before we go into that, mm. I was wondering if you could give us a brief summary of you um, and then we can start yeah. for the discussion. Perfect. Well, uh, again, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Leila Hussein. My background, I'm a psychotherapist. I'm the founder of Dahlia Project, which was the first counselling clinical counselling service for FGM survivors in Europe. I'm also recently formed an enterprise company called Magol, which specifically focuses on uh, the well-being of organisations, companies, individuals. I think you produce great work when those doing the work, their mental well-being, it's at the forefront. I think that's something I learned over the years. So Magol is that work. I'm originally from Somalia, but I grew up between Saudi Arabia, Italy, and then London was my home from the age of 12 till now. My family lives here. Oh, wow. I, have, I have a daughter who's going to be 18 in August. And uh, yeah, and recently since obviously COVID-19 has happened, I now turned my work online, which is something I never thought I'd be doing. And it's been an interesting journey, I have to say. And I've been really privileged to be supporting uh, activists around the world. I mean, just uh, on last week, Tuesday, I had, you know, a group call with an activist from Mexico, Costa Rica, Taiwan, you know, Bali, 
Kenya, Malawi. And I remember just thinking, oh, my goodness, usually we wouldn't be in the same room. But somehow technology has given us a space to be together. So I'm really grateful to now being part of this world. But I'm looking forward to going back to human contact again. (laughs) We do miss human contact. I miss hugging. I mean, I, I'm lucky I get to hug my son and my family who's here. Yeah. But, you know, when you see friends and you just hug them. Yeah, I do miss that. Definitely. Um, so you, you've you I think I, I'm so inspired by what you do. It's absolutely phenomenal. Do you want to say the interesting facts that we have in common and how we met? Oh, my God. I love telling this story. I actually love always <laughs> introducing us to people. It's like the fun introductions I do. So you and I met. It started with a campaign on, actually it was, the campaign was started by Caroline Cara Perez on not having women on, attempt, uh, on, 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 uh, on, on, uh, on notes, basically, on cash notes. And that led to, apparently, I didn't even know this, uh, there were no living women who had statues in the UK. And those that they had were mainly royal women. So there was a campaign that was kicked off. And so in, in Britain, they people had to vote for 24 women to have a statue. And you and I were the people that got, that got picked. I think for me, that's always going to be a, a, a surreal moment because it was the people that identified us. And you and I yeah. met as we were getting scanned, which is really interesting because I knew about your work. You knew about my work. And then we meet as our bodies were being scanned. Until now, uh, let's make a promise. After after this lockdown is over, we will go and visit each other's statues. We have to do that now. I think I don't think I appreciated it <laughs> that time. I think it was a bit too much to take in. But I, I love that you and I share, and I and I also I think what I what was I love how the universe works. But I think you and I both have two organizations that represent plants: Lotus Flower yeah. and the Dahlia Flower, which is interesting. Yeah. And they're both projects. So it's like, and we both uh, work with women at grassroots level. You and I are not, you know, out there and at the forefront with celebrities. And that's, I think you and I on the other side of the story, we are there with the women, you know, the women who we are supporting. We see every, so we have a lot in common, which actually it wasn't just a statue, but there's a a lot of uh, similarities. Our souls are connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two single moms, you know. Yeah, our son, like our kids are the same age, and mm-hmm. we've got many portraits. Absolutely, like it's, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So hopefully, one day, let's put this out to the universe. You and I will be on a big stage, and we'll be telling the story on how you know Absolutely. We, we, how how we met. And, and one thing we've done. <laughs> I think the universe has also brought us together. We do have, and this is, I guess, one of the questions I'm going to go back to mm. um, is. Like when did or how did your passion for supporting FGM survivors start? And yeah. I'll let you start the story, but yeah. I'll feed into something on how we men, how that connection is there as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And I'm sure you have the same, you know, we didn't wake up to be activists. Like that's not, and I think looking back in my childhood, my mom reminded me, because Leila, you were always speaking out against something. So that was always within me. But for me, the conversation about female genital mutilation and actually for the audience, maybe I should explain female genital mutilation. It's when the female genitalia, it's partially or totally removed and the remaining skin is stitched together and you're left with a small opening where you're expected to menstruate, you know, 
uh, give birth, have intercourse. I mean, you can just imagine how painful that would be. Mm. I, I'm, uh, I experienced this as a child, and but no one talks about it. It was a big party. No one talks about it. I had, I had the, I had the, the five star version because I, my family was privileged. I got it done by a doctor, and I had, you know, antibiotics, some painkillers, you know, to help me afterwards, you know, to, to, to heal. So you just didn't talk about something like this. For me, this conversation, uh, this actually came up after my daughter was born. She was three months old, mm. and I go and visit another clinic because I was struggling. Uh, um, would just I, I just kept I, I realized every time I was vaginally examined I kept blacking out I kept fainting and no one would tell me why until my mom said hey you know there was a Somali doctor Dr. Fadima Hussein who was also a big campaigner against this who run this clinic with her with a nurse that worked with her Jennifer Bourne and actually Fatima wasn't there so I saw Jennifer and Jennifer said to me hey you know what was your pregnancy like? And I said, oh, you know, I got it was horrible. I said, I hated the whole pregnancy. And then she said, you know, what was the birth like? I said, listen, I didn't mind the birthing bit. I just hated every time I was vaginally examined because I said, I'll pass out. I would literally black out. I, got, I would cry like a little child every time they had, because they have to check you to see how many centimeters you're over. And she said to me, oh, Miss Hussein, can I just check? Have you undergone this practice? And I said, Oh, yeah, but I said I didn't have the worst type. You know, I wasn't totally closed. You know, I didn't have problem having sex or urinating. And she said, well, she goes, that's not the point. She goes, well, it sounds like that you're, every time you were vaginally examined, you were having flashbacks. So my body, mm. I suppressed those feelings. To me, FGM was not on the radar at all. Didn't even think about it for a second. And what's so shocking about this my midwife and my doctor can see I had a, a scar, but they'd never said a word to me. So this is the first time oh, wow. it's been brought up. I had this done at the age of seven. I'm 21 when oh. someone's bringing it up with me. So, so you, do you remember it? I mean, I, I remember, remember yeah, stuff yeah. from the age of four. No, no. I Well, oh, wow. it took me a while to remember it. When this is happening, mm. I literally just vaguely remember. Um, so what happened was she starts, so I tell her, and then she's the, she's the first human being that explained to me what was happening to my body. And she described it to me. She goes, listen, she goes, Layla, the reason you're passing out, last time you had your legs spread apart and somebody went with an instrument and it was a health professional. It was violence. It wasn't something that was a good experience for you. So yeah. even though I suppressed that memory, my body actually remembered which is interesting because currently I'm reading a book called The Body Keeps the Score which really links to this work um yeah. it, it basically our bodies have a way of remembering memories that we might actually suppressed so my body was remembering every time I had a smear test I I, I still have anxieties about smear test so that is and I, and I have my three-month-old baby in my hand who's a little girl and I remember I said well, you know, it's not a big deal. I didn't have any problems. I'm already, there's alarm bells here that I don't think FGM is wrong. So mm. my questioning started when somebody finally made me realize, and, and she was such an amazing nurse who, who's now a good friend of mine. We worked together for years, Jennifer. She invited me back a few times to the clinic. She was the first human being to teach me about my body again. Like she said, this is how your mm. genitalia should look like. This is what it should have. No one should have taken that away from you. Like, 
or it was like something in my psyche finally was saying, this is, this is what you've been dealing with. Like, I mean, I had serious depression as a teenager. I didn't trust a lot of people, but I didn't know why I didn't trust a lot of people. I couldn't, I couldn't have that intimate relationship with people. I didn't like older, I used to be scared of older Somali women, like literally real fear. But it was because they pinned me down. See, all this now is starting to make sense to me. So I guess me wanting to fight it, one was really to protect my daughter from it. But by then my family was against it. But I just, and and I also realized it wasn't just FGM I had to protect her from. I realized this is embedded within a patriarchal system where we are policing and controlling the female body. And my daughter's, obviously I have a, I gave birth to a girl. So I guess for me, the drive has been wanting to protect her, wanting to create a better world for her where she doesn't experience what I experienced. I think that was what drove me to this, which is still my my drive now. That's, um, so you're, you're, you're a survivor. You are a remarkable survivor. Mm -hmm. I think that's why we're also very connected. And that's why we work with the women is because. We've been there. We've seen it. Yeah. 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 We felt it. So, I mean, in terms of like that particular moment, so you said Jennifer Mm. played a, large role in, in in making you I guess change your perceptions and lead you into this work was there a particular moment that wh- where the penny just dropped were you I don't know were you in one of the sessions with her or was it yeah when you've gone home oh and, my gosh yeah I, I that particular moment where you, your stomach just goes what, what, oh there's it was yeah. my stomach I nearly passed out I remember I wanted I wanted to volunteer for her for their clinic and I became an interpreter. I was interpreter for the Somali women. And one day she invites me to a presentation they were doing at this conference. And I thought, oh, I'll just come and watch. I mean, I know at this point it's wrong, but I'm not realizing the damage it's done. This is the day I'm going to find out how damaging this is. Literally, I'm sitting down as she's presenting what FGM is to the audience. And this was a clinical audience. I'm having that same feeling I was having when I'm passing out, when I'm having smear test, literally. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, but you're not having a smear test. Why are you having the same feeling? Like literally my feet were sweating. I was shaking, but it was like, I was being cut all over again. Like it felt so, and I remember it was the first time I remember running and I puked. I remember I literally puked on the corridor. Literally I had this physical reaction to this. And I remember like running because I was embarrassed I was feeling this and I felt really awful ran went to the bathroom I mean I puked all over the corridor but she came after me and it was the first time I admitted the damage that happened to me as a child and actually it was the first time I used the word I said but I said Jennifer this is not traditional practice this is child abuse I said I'm the way I, I I've been abused as a child and me saying that out so loud and I just broke down in the middle of the bathroom and she was comforting me, crying. Literally, I remember this crying my eyes out. I kept apologizing for vomiting, as you do as a human being. That's what you were most embarrassed about. And she was so great. She said, no. She goes, Layla, you really, and I remember she said to me, you need to seek help, like psychological support. But that, I'll come back to that though, because it took like nearly four years before I could see psychological support. Yeah. But that was the moment when I knew Oh my, and that anger started to kick in. That anger towards my mm. mother kicked in quite around that time because I, this is a woman who always was there for me, loved me, 
you know, my mom came to this country without speaking English as a refugee, lost everything back home. The, the oldest child is 12. The youngest is four months, you know, went through all of that. How can I be mad at this person? But I was so angry, so angry. And I didn't know how to place that anger without offending my mother. So it was tough. It was really tough. Even as I think about it, it makes me emotional because I feel like when usually survivors like myself are talking about this, it's always considered something that's happened a few years ago and we, we've dealt with it. I have, I, I relive this every day of my life, like literally every day. Like I, I'm, I mean, a funny story, you know, you go on a date. These are the things you have to tell somebody. <laughs> you don't want them to be shocked. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, just letting you know if we ever get intimate, you know, part of my body's not there. Like it's, it's crazy. It's, it's that life that I'm leading all the time. So it was, that was the moment, really. It was a physical reaction. I remember it like that. And how did you decide I'm going to change or help and support myself or like what was that journey like what what, what happened after I guess I guess I was do you know what I wouldn't recommend it but I was really well I guess it's like this for any activist I was driven by anger at the beginning there was a lot of anger yeah like I wanted to arrest everybody I wanted to attack everyone I was just so pissed off I was really angry especially at the the UK authorities because I said hmm if even I came here, um, I was already cut by the time I came to the UK, but if at biology, let's biology classes, I was taught about my body, I might have said something, I might have noticed something, but no one talked to me about this. And what made me so angry, my anger really was towards especially the midwives. Like not one person said, hey, your genitalia looks different here. Can you just tell me? Like literally pretend, everybody pretended they didn't see me which is even more, I, yeah. till now, I actually, I feel it's still hurt by that for some reason. I mean, I work really closely with the Royal College of Midwifery for that reason. But I'm yeah. always, I'm always saying, how the hell you asked me about other bruises in my body, but you didn't, couldn't ask that, especially knowing that my baby's going to come out through that at some point. Mm. And it was that attitude of, well, this is what these women go through. We're not even going to bother asking, which really makes you feel like you're not valued or you're not seen as other women who should be protected or even be supported. So for me, that's where my, I was, I was driven by anger, but my aim was we need to remove the stigma from obviously women like myself from hiding it, but we need, to, yeah. professionals need to ask this question. You have to ask, because yeah. I said, if, 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 let me tell you something. And I think about this and it actually scares me when I think about it. I always wonder what I would have done if I didn't meet Jennifer Bourne. Like I owe her my life, that woman. So it makes me really tearful just thinking about her, but I owe her my life because if I didn't see her that day, I might, my daughter might have had the small type that I didn't think there was nothing wrong with it because I would have thought as a great mother, I have to do this for her. Yeah. That's why I've been so yeah. adamant. Frontline professionals has to do their job because Jennifer did her job. She did her job. She didn't, you know, she didn't need to, she did her job as a nurse and she said she was safeguarding my child. And I don't think that's something that we should worry about. That's not racist. That's not, you know, being, uh, 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 that's not uh, discriminating against somebody. Actually, I think you are being racist, racist and being discriminative if you don't ask that question, because then you're saying that's okay for you to go through that. And that's been my argument yeah. for today. Do you think there was enough awareness and ed like education around it 
at that time? Like, did you have anyone that was speaking out or talking about it outside of Jessica, uh, uh, Jennifer? Jennifer? Well, um, the like, UK had, it- yeah, there were prominent activists from going back to the 70s, you know, I pray. I mean, I would like to pay tribute to a woman called Shamas Diri, who's a Somali woman. I mean, this woman had firebombs thrown through her, like post, you know, in the seventies when she tried to talk about this. Uh, my one of my mentors, Fwa Dokunu. I mean, they really pushed it, but for the UK government, it was just like a ticking box. They had an FGM Act in nineteen eighty-five, but no one even heard of it. The police also sure because never even heard of this particular act. So it was there was information, but nobody knew. If that makes sense, it's like. Yeah, information yeah. there, but you have to go and look for it yourself. But but what we have to remember, you know, if I focus specifically in the UK, the UK we have this culture of we don't get involved in other people's cultures. I mean, that is, yeah. I think it's it's this PC behavior in the UK, which a lot of migrant communities, especially migrant women, have been really like they they they've been they've been um, ruined by this particular attitude because many will not intervene or ask a question because they're like, you know, this is their culture, this is their religion, we're not going to interfere, it meaning these women and girls will be harmed. And that's what happened in the UK. Yeah, so there was, yeah. There was information, it was great what that was being done, but nobody was here. And at the time, though, they were only hearing from women who were older women who who under, who have undergone FGM. So I, I, I was one right. of the first girl with the London accent <laughs> yeah, yeah I have a London yeah. accent saying I've undergone FGM and I actually remember I even started working for this clinic as a youth outreach worker I didn't actually say I didn't I didn't tell my story so I ended up working with them in 2000 and early 2000 and no end of 2002 and I didn't come out and tell my story to 2007. How many years is that? That was nearly oh, like, wow. Yeah, because it, it takes that long. People think you can just come out and tell your yeah, story. No. It, 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 it's it hard. It's <laughs> because I had to face my own stuff first. I had to face, I'd been working in this clinic. No one knew, only few, only my, obviously my colleague, Jennifer knew and Fatima knew, but no one else knew because it was there was a shame as well connected to this. How can you, especially people really look at me like, oh, she's raised in London. You know, it's those people back home, you know, who don't speak proper English yeah. must have gone some, through something like this. Yeah. 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 And how how did your, I guess, healing journey start? And did that help mm. you um, through your activism work? And what challenges did you face? I'm, I'm sure, mm. especially well, from the community. Again, like, I know uh, that Jennifer played a big part in my starting that journey of healing. Um I remember she actually said, hey, in order for you to do this work, you have to get therapy. You have to get therapy. You actually have to get therapy. And I remember it was one of my first breakdowns I had at work because I'm, because when you're doing this way, you're, 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 you're talking about yourself all the time. Like it's your own stuff that keeps coming up. And I had, my dad passed away. And then I had, a, I had a horrible breakdown. I was, you know, people, the community knew what I was doing, but I didn't never tell them my story, but they knew I was trying to protect girls from this. So I was getting death threats in my own community at the time. Yeah. And I remember one day, Jennifer just sat me down and which actually you will find led to my work right now. It was her that set this intention from then. She sent me home. <laughs> she goes, Layla, you're going to go home. You will be on full pay. Um, but do not come back until you're in therapy. 
And she was my manager. She goes, I will not be a good manager, someone who cares about you if I let you continue working in this in this state. She goes, you'll have your full pay. Go. And I guess I thought, I said, okay, I'll be back in uh, two weeks, three weeks. It took me nine months for me to go back to work. That's that's how broken I became. And that's when I went to therapy. I mean, during that time, I went to therapy and it was very difficult because I come from a community. You don't go to a therapist. And I think it was the fourth therapist actually sat down because each therapist kept telling me my mom did this and I wasn't ready to hear that. I didn't want to hear it. Yeah. It came back to, well, how do you feel about your mom doing this to you? And I would not come back. I think it was the fourth therapist. Finally, I sat down and I had to, because I knew I had to face it. I had to face it. The anger got more. So when I went back to work, uh, I obviously told Jennifer how much I loved the therapeutic space and, and I said oh my god we need to do this for the women so it was her actually who suggested hey she goes if you want to uh, maybe to, you know to, to support your skills at work maybe do you want to do like a six-week counseling course you know just to get a basic counseling introduction and I said yeah, yeah yeah I would love to do it so I went to do it I loved the whole experience which led to the six weeks then I did the one-year certificate then I did my degree and then I did my postgrad which and then oh, wow. three years ago uh, because I set up this clinic same university awarded me my uh, doctorate, which is so it. And again, she played a really big part in my life. But one thing I learned from that lesson of her sending me home, each work that I've done, I had to make sure those I'm working with, their well-being is number one. Their mental well-being has to be number one. And to me, that was super, super important from day one. So every work I tried to do and I knew when I was working in toxic environments, I had to get myself out of it. But it yeah, took a while. Yeah. So my healing, my healing journey, it's still continuing. It's present in my personal life. It's present in my working life. It's present in my activism. And I read, and I, the last two years, actually, my company, Magal, was about bringing my activism work with my counseling work. Because what Ooh. I realized, there was a big gap. You know, us activists, you know, we're like these superheroes on stage, but we're having breakdown behind closed doors. No one yeah. knows we are having such a terrible time. So I wanted to remove that stigma for activists. So I started this in 2018, where I went and trained frontline activists in Kenya, who till now would message me and say how much they've, embed- they've embedded policies on well-being in their organizations. Because the whole idea Brilliant. is, I mean, you and I know, I mean, you and I are great friends because we check in on each other. It's like, hey. How you been? You know, and I can tell you when I'm struggling with something because I don't have that shame because you and I built that relationship where we can talk about when we're struggling. And I think my my healing process will continue and I'm okay with that. Actually, I remembered recently, I remember something that my professor said to me, because usually when we feel better, what do we do? We just let go of everything, right? And she will always mm. say to me, the moment you stop doing the work on yourself is when you lose connection. Completely. Connection. So when you're actively doing something to take care of yourself, that's what that's that's the healing. Not you have been healed and that's it, you're done. Yeah. And I never got that till recently. Like her words just came back to me. I was like, oh my God, I now know what she meant. Because she goes, the moment you stop, you lose you you lose connection with yourself again. Yeah. So completely. And that is so it's so so true. And it's like it's something that we need to speak about more. People mm. think that actually it oh my voice is echoing I think oh gosh <laughs> um it people think that it, it's a de- destination that you reach and you're healed and it's finished 
that's that's not how it is. That's not how it healing is. Healing is a lifelong journey. It's, it's a daily practice. I mean, look at so the world I'm really we're living glad. in. Look at the world we're living in. We have to continue to heal ourselves. Completely, completely. We have to. We have to. And so what kept you going? What keeps me going? Do you know what? Let me tell you, you know, every day, like there are days when I just wake up, I'm like, I'm resigning from this. I'm sure you feel the same with you. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. And what I've learned, <laughs> but somehow, I don't know what happens. Whenever I make that decision, I'll meditate and I'll talk to my mother about it because my mother always says, okay, my darling, I'll make you some food, you know, sleep on it. She always says that to me because she knows I just need to rant this out. But what keeps <laughs> me going, especially now that's coming up to 18 years of me doing this work, I am now meeting, oh my God, I don't know about you, but I'm actually meeting 18-year-old girls who would tell me, oh, because of your work, my mom didn't cut me. And let me tell oh. you, I have shivers going down my spine when they say something. I mean, even after really emotional thinking about it, I'm like, oh my God, something someone heard. <laughs> yeah. That, that, and, I see, and I see the woman my daughter's becoming, that really gets me going absolutely like and me and my daughter talk about this and when she asks me questions I'm like wow I could never have asked my mother that question or expected like mm. the other day she was uh doing something and I said oh Faye can you get this done you know we you know we have to multitask she goes no she goes I need to rest I need to stop I need to stop and I oh, stopped wow. for a second I was like oh my god she's telling me she needs to take care of herself and I cannot get in the way of that because yeah, we feel like yeah. we keep going. We were, I was brought up in a, you know, in, a, in a family environment where, you know, working, 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 working. But actually what keeps, go what keeps me going as well, it's I need to take care of myself because this is a lot, long life um, yeah. mission. And it's I always felt it. Like, yeah, it's a commitment. And I, yeah, so that keeps me, and I don't like injustice. I think fundamentally that's what it comes back to for me. I don't like injustice. Yeah. I don't like people being oppressed. And for me, that's absolutely, and, and, and seeing my daughter and who she's become, absolutely keeps good. But I love hearing from young girls who will say, hey, because of you, my mom didn't cut me. Or I've seen mothers who would say, oh, because of that time I heard you speak. And, 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 and because I've been so public about my daughter, I didn't hide the fact that my daughter wasn't cut. Because also in our community, when a girl's not cut, it's hidden. So they both carry the same shame anyway. The shame is still mm. there. So I didn't want that for my child. I didn't want her to carry any of that shame. I wanted to be proud for not being cut. Yeah. You know? And she is wonderful. She's, oh, oh my God. Oh, she loves an amazing When mom. is she coming back? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, you are so inspiring. I, I, I would say, so as difficult as it was, and I think this is when, mm. like, when we go through such difficult things and you have to go through so much hardship, and then you end up getting to where you are now. Mm. Are you happy that you listened to that something inside you that led you to change your life? Oh, my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Actually, I'll give you a quick story. Um, talking about healing again. Only last year, August, I was in a forest in Kenya with a group of friends. We were meditating. It was the first time I realized that, actually because it was the first time I actually liked myself. I knew I loved myself and I was happy with who I was, but it meant I had to go through all of that. Yeah. Like it was literally, it was like, ah, in order for me to get to where I am right now, I had to go through that. Like it, it, there was no choice. 
And in order for me to love myself, I had to do that. Like it, I had to go through to this. I had to go through that process. And I like the person I am. How many people can say that about themselves? Completely. Oh wow. Yeah. That gives me shivers because I can. <laughs> I, can, I, can <laughs> I can literally feel it. That's, oh, I'm feeling so emotional. Cool. Actually, I'm like, oh my god, am I in therapy? <laughs> I do a lot. A lot of people talk to me on podcasts. I've done a lot of interviews. But this is the most emotional one I've had so far. <laughs> It's oh, you, it's you. I feel quite the same oh, thing. It's thank you. <laughs> it's, well, it's also making, I guess, for the listeners that are listening, I, yeah. I, I've, I've been through so much and I didn't want to just highlight what I've been through. I know that there are so many people that have been through so much, but they've come out the other side and they've mm. made a change that have inspired other people. I want people to realise there are so many people out there like this and to hear those moments that actually where you change and force that change and then you go through that journey of hardship that is so inspiring for others to hear I think for me personally that just goes way beyond any other I don't know celebrity podcast or whatever to listen to because this is true this is true true human connection yeah human stories completely absolutely oh thank you so much like I this is I've done so many interviews on podcasts Oh, feeling really emotional this like is, yeah this is thank you for sharing that as well like I, it's, I'm know. actually realizing why I feel emotional because I know you get it you're not like an outsider yeah. hearing my story you you know what the hell I'm talking about you know what I'm talking yeah. about yeah, yeah. So I know yeah. I, I I know I I sense that you, you I'm tearing up <laughs> I know you're hearing me so that's very important <laughs> I hear you lovely I do so any I, I guess the final question um given your journey and if there's anyone listening to this and maybe they've heard that inkling of that something within, but they're maybe too scared to follow it through or what, what advice would you give them or what would you say to them? Oh, my gosh. Listen to your instinct. I wish someone told me that earlier on because mm. I never listened to my instinct. And then later on, I realized that was the actual thing I should have done. And one thing I learned about this work, it's whatever idea or thoughts I have, as long as I love it, that has to be number one. I have to love it first. It's like this podcast. You have to love it first because then no one will get it. So whatever message or views I have, I have to know that I, I, I respect myself and value myself enough to believe my message or mission. And it natu- when you feel that way, then it naturally resonates. People can hear it. You don't have to go into too much explanation because they can see it. Like it vibrates out of you. And I would say, but, but also be mindful. Be mindful. Those of us who want to change this world for the better, it's also very painful. It's heartbreaking. It's truly heartbreaking. Sometimes we're physically at risk. You know, I know I had to move mm. home a few times. My address is protected. You know, I have a panic alarm at home. That's a life, unfortunately, I have to live. But it's, I don't want, I don't wish on anyone else, by the way. However, I, this is why I have to take care of myself because I chose this. I believe in this. I really, really believe in this. And I'm telling you, I'm, it's one thing that hasn't scared me that I would die for. I really, it's the only time I haven't been mm. scared of death. It's because... I know I live in a world where women are more at risk. Women and girls are more at risk than, than now. And yeah. and what horrifies me and shocks me that we're not outraged. One in three women is violated and there's no outrage. And this virus 
the whole world is it's it's up in arms. But yeah. women and girls being killed, no outrage. And that's that that is that that so that you need a lots of energy and and will take care. But I'm absolutely I love that I'm part of that movement that's gonna mm. that wants and to make in, that change. Inner strength. Absolutely. Inner strength and looking after yourself, like what and have you a, said and about and, and, taking and, care. and allow people to take care of you. That is something I've learned recently. Allowing my friends to take care of me. Like it's okay for me to not able to <laughs> get out of the couch and want a tub of ice cream, yeah. you know? <laughs> and Completely. they cook for me and, and I can cry. It's so important. Being vulnerable, actually it's the strongest trait I have at work. And in my personal life, if I cannot share that, then why do I expect other people to? That's beautiful. Oh, that's 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 just beautiful to end it on there as well I because think so. it's it's so I true. Think so. <laughs> Thank you. I've so enjoyed this. Um, Me too. I, I, I don't really want to stop talking. I could talk for hours. I actually, I feel um, like I've been in a therapy session. I'm actually ready for my next call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go there a bit ready. I'm, I'm glad. All right, my lovely. Thank, thank you, you so so much. so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. And um, is the how can people find your projects if you if they? Yes. So um, you can follow there... me on Twitter, Layla Hussein at Twitter, Layla Hussein UK on Instagram. Um, you can follow the Dahlia Project on uh, Instagram. Oh no, we're not on Instagram yet. Oh my gosh, we're in we're we're on Twitter, and my goal is on Instagram and Twitter. So if you go on my Layla Hussein on Twitter, you'll find all that information. So okay, yeah. we'll do. Perfect. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for joining Thank us you today. So much for having me. Thank you. Thank You're you, welcome. Darling. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of That Something Within. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe found inspiration in the stories. If you'd like to get in contact about any of today's points, you can find me at Taban Shiresh on social channels. Remember to follow me to get updates on future episodes and remember to share the podcast. We're really looking forward to having you tune in for the next episode.